0: I moved. (laughs) I packed up and moved from one house into another house. What an ordeal. I prefer dental work. Yet God called Ezekiel to pack his bags and move out of his house twice a day, morning and evening. In chapter 12, God's stuntman is back at it. Ezekiel's strange antics, they attract the attention of his Jewish neighbors, and they send a message from God to the people. Chapter 12 begins, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, which has eyes to see but does not see, and ears to hear but does not hear, for they are a rebellious house. They've got eyes to see, but they don't see. Ears to hear, but they don't hear. God has to get their attention in some other manner. And so the stunt man is about to reenact a scene for them to contemplate. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight, as though going into captivity. And at evening you shall go in their sight, like those who go into captivity. When the invaders eventually deported the Jews from Jerusalem back to Babylon, this is exactly what happened to the exiles. They packed their bags. They moved out of their houses. They were transported back to Babylon. God continues, Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. And imagine the Jews in Jerusalem during the siege. When the invasion began, their doors were bolted shut. In order to capture these inhabitants of Jerusalem, the enemy had to dig through their walls. This is exactly what Ezekiel is reenacting. He's reenacting the the siege of Jerusalem, but he's doing so before it happens, in advance. Verse 6, "...in their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel." So I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day as though going into captivity, and at evening I dug through the wall with my hand." I wonder what his wife said about digging through the walls all the time. I brought them out at twilight, and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. Twice a day, Ezekiel moves out of his own house with his suitcases in hand. In the morning, it was through the front door. In the evening, he dug out through his exterior walls. Imagine if you had been one of his neighbors, and you were saw, saw this going on day after day. What in the world would you think? You'd think you live next door to a nut. You'd start calling him U-Haul or Mayflower. Verse 8, And in the morning the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, What are you doing? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, This burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem, and all the house of Israel who are among them, Say, I am a sign to you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. Ezekiel's antics were a message to a specific prince who was actually the acting king. You remember the real king, the Davidic successor, Jeconiah, was still alive. But he had already been taken back to Babylon in captivity. The Babylonians had replaced Jeconiah with his uncle, Zedekiah. But soon, according to Ezekiel, even Zedekiah and the Jews in Jerusalem will be forced to move. They'll all be packing their bags and they'll be let out through the city, through holes and breaches in the walls. Verse 13. I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Now read Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 3, and there seems to be a discrepancy here. He says of Zedekiah, Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. Now, one prophet says that Zedekiah will see Babylon's king. The other says that he'll reach Babylon, but he won't see it. And this seeming discrepancy was actually known by Zedekiah. The first century Jewish historian, Flavius Josephus, he records some interesting observations. In his histories, he wrote this. It happened that Jeremiah and Ezekiel agreed with one another in what they said, in all other things, that the city should be taken, and Zedekiah himself should be taken captive. But Ezekiel disagreed with Jeremiah and said that Zedekiah should not see Babylon, while Jeremiah said that the king of Babylon would carry him away. And because they did not both say the same thing as to this circumstance, Zedekiah disbelieved all that they had, agreed in and condemned both prophets as not speaking the truth. You see, because they seemed to disagree on this one point, King Zedekiah threw out everything they both had said. Here's the irony. Both prophets were right. Time and history clear up what was assumed to be a contradiction. First Kings chapter 25 tells us that when Zedekiah was captured, He wasn't taken immediately to Babylon. He first met the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, at his field headquarters in Riblah, which was in Syria. There the two men met eye to eye, just as Jeremiah had said. And it was in Riblah, Syria, where the Babylonian king killed Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes, then had his own eyes plucked out so that his last sight on earth was the execution of his own sons. It was Nebuchadnezzar's way of punishing Zedekiah for his rebellion. But all this meant that Ezekiel's prophecy was also true, for Zedekiah shall not see Babylon, though he'll die there. And the moral of the story, (laughs) don't be so quick to say that God has contradicted himself. Just because he doesn't feel obliged to give us all the details or to resolve all our questions doesn't mean that what God has said isn't true. We need to trust God's Word even when He doesn't give us all the information that we might like. Verse 14 continues Ezekiel's prophecy against the prince Zedekiah. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him and all his troops and I will draw out the sword after them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the country. They are going to get blown out like wood chips all across the nation, the country. But I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine, and from pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. God is going to judge His people Israel. Verse 17, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink your water with trembling and anxiety. In other words, here's here's another stunt, a prophetic, spiritual stunt that Ezekiel is to perform. When he eats a piece of bread, he's to eat it as if it were his very last morsel. When he sips a cup of water, he's to do so as if it were the last drops in the bucket. He's to eat and drink in desperation. And why? This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will behave when the Babylonians lay siege to their city and cut off their supply lines. Talk about severe food rationing and water conservation. The Jews will go to great extremes when they realize that their water supplies and food supplies have been cut off. And they're down to their very last morsels, their very last drops. And say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel, They shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with dread, so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it, because of the violence of all those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste, and the land shall become desolate. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, what is this proverb that you people have about the land of Israel, which says, The days are prolonged and every vision fails? Now, God asks Ezekiel about a jingle that apparently had become popular in Jerusalem. You see, there were scoffers among God's people who were laughing at the prophets and their warnings of God's judgment. And in doing so, they compose these little catchy proverbs and these jingles in order to make light of what God had said. And here, God quotes one of them. God's been listening. He says, the the days are prolonged and every vision fails. In other words, we keep hearing about judgment, but we never see it. That's what the scoffers were saying. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they keep crying wolf, but there's really nothing to fear. Their threats don't exist. You know, it's interesting, Peter says that this will also be the case in the last days. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? You probably work with some of these scoffers. You may have a few scoffers as neighbors. People mock the whole idea of God returning, God judging this earth. Peter told us, Ezekiel told the people in Jerusalem, Peter tells us that prior to the judgment of God, people will mock and scoff as if it won't happen. Verse 23, Tell them therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest, and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel. God replaces their arrogant little jingle with a proverb of his own. But say to them, the days are at hand in the fulfillment of every vision. That's God's little jingle that he'll want them singing in the streets. In other words, the time has come and judgment is about to go down. And this would be an appropriate comeback to scoffers today. The time has come. Look at the signs, the rebirth of the nation Israel. The unification of Europe, plans in order to rebuild the temple, even the bizarre weather patterns that we're experiencing. The biblical visions of the end of time are being fulfilled. It's an indication that God's judgment is on the horizon. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord, I speak, and the word which I speak will come to pass It will no more be postponed, for in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word and perform it, says the Lord God. Ezekiel could speak to Jerusalem with certainty that their time was now up. The Lord has not given us such certainty. We see the signs, yes, but no one knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return. And yet we should always be ready, shouldn't we? We should live as if every day should be our last. I would rather die expecting the Lord's return than to relax and be surprised and go to heaven caught off guard. Wouldn't you? The godly pastor Horatio Bonar, he would lie down at night, every night before he went to sleep. He would open his shades and he would look up into the heavens and he would say, Perhaps tonight, Lord. And in the morning when he rose to greet the new day, he'd always say, perhaps today, Lord. Perhaps tonight, perhaps today, that's a good way to live. The Lord wants us always vigilant and ready for his coming. Verse 26, again the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times far off. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be postponed any more, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord God. Chapter 13. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, Hear the word of the Lord. Understand what you see is not always what you get. Several years ago, a consumer advocacy group studied brands of food, and they made some startling discoveries. Did you know that Prego spaghetti sauce with mushrooms actually contains just half of one mushroom? A Patio beef and bean burrito has just seven beans. A banquet vegetable pie? A vegetable pie now consists of 10 peas, 1 20th of a carrot, and 1 19th of a potato. Three Pillsbury Hungry Jack buttermilk pancakes contains less than a teaspoon of buttermilk. I could go on and on. Suffice it to say, what you see isn't always what you get. And this was true of the Jewish prophets. They claimed to be from God, but they weren't. False prophets existed then, and they exist now as well. Verse 3 tells us, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. I mean, the prophets in Israel were saying, Hear the word of the Lord. But they were really speaking from their own hearts. They were spouting their own wisdom. You know, back in the gold rush days of the 1800s, sometimes it was said of a miner, he's married the vein. It meant that he was no longer objective, that he had convinced himself that there was gold in the mine that he was working, regardless of whether he had ever found any evidence for it. He was believing his own lie. And this is how a false prophet gets started. He tells a lie so often that he begins to believe it. He becomes self-deluded. And this is why he's so convincing to others. Remember, your sin can shape your doctrine. Often it does. There's a pastor who succumbs to his own lusts, his own sexual appetites, And he begins to soften his stance toward morality. His sin has shaped his doctrine. He starts twisting the scripture in order to support his own sinful lifestyle. We believe the lies that we tell after a while. Reminds me of actor Douglas Fairbanks. Just before he died, he made the statement, I've never felt better. Well, I guess if you tell yourself that enough, you believe it. It's amazing how adept we can become at self-deception. Rather than trust in your feelings or in your logic, you and I need to build our lives on God's Word. Verse 4, O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the desert. A desert fox was a crafty animal. The desert fox could slip through the walls of a vineyard and within just a few hours do incredible damage. And this is what the false prophets had done in Israel. They had ruined God's vineyard, His people. You know, it's interesting, a fox doesn't grow fruit, it steals fruit. And this is the false prophet. Seldom does he go out to win new converts. No, the false prophet preys on ignorant Christians and deceives those who aren't well grounded in their faith. Reminds me of the beautiful Russian spy who was sent to pry secrets out of an American official. She seduced him with her charms. During her trial, a recording was played of the romantic conversations. The court heard him say, Oh, you're so sweet, honey. You've stolen my heart. And she replied, I know, that's my job. And stealing hearts is the job of a false prophet. Verse 5 tells us, You have not gone up into the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. Ezekiel's indictment against Israel is that they had done nothing to protect their own house. Gaps remain. The false prophets were able to prey on the people. In the late 1970s, Jim Jones and his people's temple committed mass suicide at the compound in Guyana. Shortly afterward, someone offered an explanation for how this man was able to deceive so many people. His very success was a judgment on the church for having given people so little religious substance that they could not recognize heresy when they saw it and when they experienced it. And this is an indictment against the church today. We've watered down the message. We've opted for an easy believism. We speak to people's felt needs and we convince them that Christianity only exists to make them happy. We tickle people's ears rather than make them disciples. So when a false teacher comes along and insists on a more demanding, a more challenging faith, people are drawn to his sincerity even though his doctrine is heretical. It's our shallowness that allows the false prophet to come in and deceive so many. Verse six. They have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision, and have you not spoken false divination? You say, The Lord says, but I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. God is going to banish the false prophets from from the land of Israel. And you know what? We should get rid of them from the church. This is why Paul says in Romans 16, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learn and avoid them. We should never tolerate a false doctrine in the church. It's like tolerating a fox in the vineyard. It's only going to do damage. Verse 10, Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace, And one builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered mortar, or literally a cheap grade of mortar. The false prophets of Ezekiel's day were notorious for painting a rosy, optimistic picture of the future. They seduced people with the promise of peace. Like someone who had built a wall and had plastered it with cheap mortar, it looked good on the outside, but it wasn't built to last. And so was the message of the false prophets. It sounded good. It promoted peace. It encouraged you with an optimistic picture. But it wasn't of God. God's message was one of judgment. And you know, this is what we hear today from the false prophets. So many of them preach a prosperity gospel. Oh, do the right thing and and you'll be happy. God wants a wealthy, healthy church. Or the false prophet trumpets dominion or kingdom theology. Oh, the church, we need to use our political muscle. We need to take over society. We need to build the kingdom here on earth. Then Jesus will come back for a victorious church. Yet that's not what God says is on the horizon. This world isn't destined to get better and better. Paul wrote to Timothy, in the last days, perilous times will come. Only Jesus can salvage this evil world and establish His kingdom. Our goal is not to transform institutions, but to rescue individuals. We need to remember that in a political season. Rather than be part of a takeover, we're destined to be part of a takeoff. Before God's judgment comes down, the church will go up. And yet this kind of truth is often a tough pill to swallow. Christians would rather equate success with status and power with prosperity and victory with votes. We don't like hearing the truth that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We should never forget that God measures our success by our faithfulness, even in the midst of difficult days. Well, in verse 11, God tells Ezekiel, Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar, that it will fall. There will be a flooding rain, and you, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Therefore, says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger and great hailstones in fury to consume it. And of course, the storm that God is speaking of is this Babylonian invasion. The army will move in like a flood. And so I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered and it will fall and you shall be consumed in the midst of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus I will accomplish my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it, that is, the prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord God. You know, cracked mortar is unable to keep out the floodwaters. And likewise, the message of the false prophets Failed to turn back God's judgment. The analogy for us is a parable that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember Jesus said of the of the man who hears these sayings of mine and does them, that he's like a man who builds his house on the rock, so that when the rain and the floods come, the house holds firm. It has a solid foundation. And when times get tough, it's the life that's well rounded and well grounded in God's Word that stands strong. The only way to plug a leaky life is to reject this world's deceptions and build your life on God's truth. Verse 17 tells us, Likewise, Son of Man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart, prophesy against them. Now, the problem in Jerusalem at the time wasn't just false prophets, but false prophetesses. Ezekiel was told here to confront the Jewish women who had also been duped by erroneous doctrine and say, thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of people of every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? These veils that they were weaving, they were used to cast satanic spells on others and lure them away from God. The women, they would sew amulets and talismans into their clothes. These were good luck charms and they were associated with the occult. They were a reliance on satanic power. These people were involved in the hunting of souls. You remember Nimrod the world's first dictator, the man who revolted against God at the Tower of Babel. It was said of Nimrod that he was a mighty hunter, but not only of animals. He also preyed on the souls of people. This is Satan's objective. He prays on men. He's a hunter of souls. In Revelation 6, the Antichrist of the last days is also portrayed as a hunter. He too hunts for men's souls. Evil spirits... Wicked spirits are on safari. They're hunting for people's souls. They're hunting for trophies that'll inflate their egos. Whereas the Holy Spirit is on a mission of love. Evil spirits are hunters. The Holy Spirit is our helper. Verse 19, "'Will you profane me among my people "'for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, "'killing people who should not die?' And keeping people alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. I mean, all this deception was being authored by these false prophets. And they were taking offerings of barley and bread to tell people lies. This is what happens in many churches today. They receive people's tithes in order to tell them lies. There would have been no market for the false prophets had the foolish people of God Followed him and studied his truth. Again, it was their lack of Bible knowledge that made them susceptible to these occult practices. And this is the case with many people today. It's sad, but many Christians are biblically illiterate. They don't know their Bibles, and it sets them up for deception. Again, the false prophet seldom wins a new convert, he preys on the shallow and the untaught believer. Verse 20. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls there like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go. The souls you hunt like birds. I mean, the false prophet would bait the trap, then trigger it, and then snare the gullible soul as if it was a dumb bird. God intends to free the souls of those who've fallen victims. I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. And you have strengthened the hands of the wicked, so that he does not turn from his wicked way to save his life. Notice the two sins of the false prophet. He makes the righteous sad, And he makes the wicked glad. He gives those who do evil in God's sight a false sense of security while he tries to discourage the one who is righteous. He discourages righteousness and he emboldens evil. Therefore you shall no longer envision futility nor practice divination for I will deliver my people out of your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14. Now, some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity, should I let myself be inquired of at all by them. Now, notice, it wasn't just the idol on their mantle that bothered God. It was the idol in their hearts. And the same is true today. You know, an idol has been defined as any secondary pursuit that gets promoted to ultimacy. An idol becomes anything that we exalt in importance above the Lord. And here the Lord is actually asking Ezekiel. He's asking him rhetorically. He says, if someone comes to me with a request on their lips, but there's an idol in their hearts? Should I even entertain their question, let alone give them an answer or solution? In essence, if a person doesn't exalt the Lord in their heart, are they entitled to His help in their life? It's a good question. Well, Verse 4 tells us, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent! Turn away from your idols. and Turn your faces away from all your abominations. And here God answers their question. He has only one thing to say to the idolater, and that's repent. If there's idols in your heart, he has only one thing to say to you. Repent. Get rid of your idols. God is saying, until a person repents, his idols are the only issue that God cares about. Everything else, his physical pain, perhaps his emotional sorrow, his broken relationships, his lack of finances, all the things that might concern him, they're simply symptoms of the problem. It will all keep festering until he repents of the idols in his heart and he gets right with God and puts God on the throne of his heart. God has so much he wants to do in our lives. He has answers to the problems that perplex us. He'll work in our marriage. He'll help us raise our kids. He'll straighten out our finances. But first, the issue of our allegiance has to be addressed. Does God have our hearts? Is He the Lord of our lives? We've got to clear out the idols. See, people today, they want a blessing without bowing. They want a blessing from God without bowing to God. It don't work that way. God is no fool. God isn't going to bless the person who's not willing to be ruled. He expects to be Lord in our lives. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart, And puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity. Then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. And I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord God. Now this passage brings up a strange scenario. you got to follow with me now. When an idolater comes to the prophet for advice, and the false prophet gives him erroneous counsel, you know, just kind of tells him what he wants to hear, both get judged. The inquirer and the false counselor, both end up destroyed. In fact, the passage reads, If the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, induced that prophet. God didn't put the lying words in the prophet's mouth. But he didn't stop him either. He let him spout out his nonsense. And the person who was inquiring was deceived. And he got what he deserved. In other words, think of it like this. If you draw water from a contaminated well, then expect to drink toxic water. You get what you deserve. Sometimes... God chooses to use a false prophet as His instrument of judgment. In the end, God is going to punish the deceiver, but first God allows him to deceive. Remember, God is God over both good and evil. He's sovereign. He never condones or excuses evil, but He can use it. He will punish the false prophet, but sometimes only after he uses him to deceive. There is such a thing as a punitive deception. You understand what I'm saying? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this is what Paul says, again, of the end times. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, he says that in the last days, the great tribulation, many will, and I quote, not receive the love of the truth, that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. God sends the strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. In the last days, God is going to send on rebellious people a strong delusion that will secure their judgment. It's a punitive delusion. Deception. This is why rebellion is so dangerous. Always remember that rebellion is accompanied by blindness. Be careful when you reject God's truth. It's not that you can't come back to God. If you repent, God will take you back. It's that you may never want to. Because when you rebel, a blindness settles in. Choose Satan's lie over God's truth, and God allows that person to really believe the lie. A strong delusion, at times an almost hypnotic effect, accompanies the lie. Think of what has happened in our country with the teaching of evolution. Think of what's happened. Today, most people, they consider evolution to be a certifiable fact. They consider creation just to be a tip of the hat to tradition. But study the evidence. Get into it. Really study the science of it. In reality, an objective evaluation reveals that there is more evidence to support creation than evolution. But people have bought into it. It's a strong delusion. It's taken over. I'm just saying a lie is lethal because it's laced with delusional abilities. It not only deceives for a time, but it can prohibit a person from ever returning to the truth. Verse 12, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Now realize, God wasn't punishing Judah because of a single slip up, because they had stumbled into sin. No, God's punishment came because of a long season of sin and rebellion. The people were guilty, as Ezekiel says here, of persistent unfaithfulness. It was a persistent unfaithfulness. The Jews had spent so many years with their backs to God. God had finally had enough. Judgment was due. And notice how Ezekiel constructs this verse. He says, when a land sins. The verbiage sounds like a general principle that could be applied to any nation, doesn't it? When a land sins. This was the land of Israel. Could it also apply to the United States of America? Sure it can. When a land sins, the nation, that nation is headed for judgment. And Ezekiel continues in verse 14, even if these three, this is interesting, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. You remember, Noah offered the world a way to avert a global flood. Daniel interpreted the king's dream and saved the life of his colleagues. Job prayed for his sons and daughters just in case they might sin. All three men, Job, Noah, and Daniel, were famous intercessors. They intervened on behalf of others and God heard their prayers. Yet here he's saying, even Job, Noah, and Daniel can't halt God's judgment against Jerusalem at this time. The nation Judah had passed the point of no return. God's orders had been sent. I mean, God had already pushed sinned, man. No change of heart, no desperation cries, no last gas prayers are going to change God's mind. Judgment has been fixed. Verse 15, if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it, and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, Sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land, and pour out my fury on it in blood, and cut off from it man and beast. Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you shall see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it, and they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. Four plagues will come upon Judah, the sword, the famine, the wild beasts, and the pestilence, and their judgment is certain. God will preserve a remnant of Jews. They'll be taken to Babylon. A new generation will survive, but only after this judgment has been served. Chapter 15 declares, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch which is among the trees of the forest. Now both Jewish tradition and biblical imagery identify the vine as a symbol for Israel. The historian Josephus said that the doors of the second temple were engraved with vines. Isaiah 5 Jeremiah 2, Hosea 10 are all examples of this. In fact, in Psalm 80, verse 8, it says of God, You have brought a vine out of Egypt, you have cast out the nations and planted it. Israel was the vine that God had taken from Egypt and had replanted in the land of Canaan, the promised land. But Ezekiel asked this question, Why was the vine better than other types of wood in the forest? or why were the hebrews chosen by god over other nations? No, for what purpose did the vine wood serve that other branches were unable to duplicate? and verse 3 tells us he starts answering the question. is wood taken from it to make any object? no. the vine was too twisted. vine wood is too gnarly to be used as a form of lumber or trim. Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? No, vine wood is too weak to use as a peg or a hook. Instead, is it, it is thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? And again, the wood of the vine was too combustible to fuel the fire. I mean, it burned out too quickly to be considered to be an appropriate fuel. Verse 5, indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful for any work when the fire has devoured it and it is burned? So what good is the vine wood? I mean, you can't build anything with it. It's too weak to hang anything from it. It burns up too quickly to be useful for fuel. What is its purpose? The vine wood served only one purpose, and that was to bear fruit. And the same is true with us, you and me. As the branch is connected to the vine, so are we grafted into Jesus. Spiritually, we have become one with Him. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, "'I am the vine, and you are the branches.'" His vitality, His life flows through us. And as a result, we bear fruit. Hey, we're too twisted for God to make anything beautiful out of us. We're too weak to hang from us any heavy burdens. We burn out too quickly to be a source of any energy. Like the vine, our only purpose is to bear fruit. Jesus said, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It's when we lean on Jesus. It's when we rely on him to do the living in our lives. That's when we bear fruit. The joy, the peace, the love, the self-control, the kindness of the Holy Spirit appears in us. It begins to sprout from our branches. Try to muster these fruits on your own. And you'll end up a pathetic synthetic, like biting into a wax apple. You'll be tasteless and phony. Now the key to living the Christian life, to bearing fruit for Jesus, is to let Him do the living through us. Verse 6, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. You see, because they didn't bear fruit, because Israel refused to remain in the vine, they refused to trust in the Lord. God cast them from one fiery judgment into another. And that's where they've been for the last 2,000 years. As Ezekiel says, they will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. That's, that's Jewish history for the last 2,000 years. In essence, out of the frying pan and into the fire. For two millenniums now, the Jews have gone from one fiery trial to the next fiery trial. Track Jewish history. They were banished from every country to which they fled until... They were almost extinguished by Hitler and the Nazis. That's what led to their return home. And yet Jesus is not just talking to the Jews. He's also saying something very important to us. For in John 15, Jesus stated to his disciples, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing yet. And he had to have had Ezekiel in his mind when he said it. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. He's talking about us here. Those who refuse to abide in Christ are also destined to be tossed into the fire. Also the fires of God's judgment. Well, verse 8 takes us full circle. Ezekiel repeats what he'd explained In chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Thus I will make the land desolate, because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. Again, they weren't being judged for a slip-up. They weren't being judged for an occasional stumble. They were being judged for persistent unfaithfulness.